Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat this opportunity to come together as Mishpacha's family to worship you in, uh, in, in unity in your Ruach HaKodesh and your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that as we open up your words today that you will speak into our hearts and our lives, that you will open up our hearts to receive your word, and that you will breathe into us today with your Ruach Chaim, your breath of life. Lord, I pray that you use me as a vessel for you, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. And Lord, that you will be glorified above all else as your word is proclaimed, B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen, Amen and Amen. So this week we're in Parsha B'Midbar. Uh, Parsha B'Midbar comes from Numbers chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, uh, verse 20. This is the first Parsha in the book of Numbers, um, and, uh, and a very interesting book at that. As we look at the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 1 through the end of Numbers covers approximately 38 years and change of Israel's journey. All right? So getting from uh, Exodus 12 to Numbers chapter 1 is a year and change, all right? Getting from, or it's just at two years. Getting from Numbers 1 to Deuteronomy 1 is 38 years and change. Deuteronomy 1 through the end of Deuteronomy was all of about two months max of Israel's history. And it was the very closing end of Israel's journey in the wilderness. It was, uh, I call Deuteronomy the book that should have never been. If Israel had done what they were supposed to do in the first place, uh, then they would have never had to be retold the Torah at the Jordan a second time around. Uh, so this week we start the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is where we read about the majority of Israel's journey, the events that occurred in their journey, and the things that the Lord has done for them. Whereas the book of Leviticus is chock full of commandments and rules and regulations, and the same with a lot of Exodus. Numbers also has commandments in, the, in it, but it is uh, a lot more of a historical document telling us about what Israel experienced, much like what Exodus is. So as we uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 1, uh, we realize that this is what it's all about. Now, the Hebrew word Bemidbar doesn't actually mean numbers. You know, the English name doesn't necessarily come from the Hebrew name. The Hebrew name Bemidbar comes from one of the early words in the first line of this Parsha in Hebrew, which literally means in the desert. Why? Because that's where Israel was, was in the desert at the base of Mount Sinai. And this is the beginning of what becomes their journey away from Sinai toward the promised land. Uh, and so the book of Numbers in English gets its name from the fact that the Lord starts the book out by saying, count the people of Israel. So we can see how many men of, of battle age there are, those that are age 20 to 60, so that when Israel goes in the promised land, we know how many warriors they have to fight for them. But in particular, I actually want to focus on uh, a few other things in the Parsha, not necessarily the beginning with the count, but a couple other things dealing with the camp of Israel and the purpose for the camp of Israel. How many of you realize, and I think we may have said this last week too, how many of you realize that the whole purpose for God creating us at all was so that we could be in his presence, right? That's, that's all he wanted for us was to be in his presence. We are his children. He's our father. He wanted us to lovingly be in his presence. Uh, and, and I think about 
and I'm, look, I'm human as much as anybody else in the room is. Uh, I mess up too all the time. Uh, my wife will gladly tell you I am nowhere near perfect. Uh, and, and the reality is, is we all mess up. But I look at my relationship with God, and, and, uh, and as I do, I am in a unique position because uh, I have a seven-year-old son, and I have a nine-year-old daughter. Uh, and so I have this opportunity to look at my children and to see how they interact and relate with me as their father, because the Lord says, Yeshua says, you're to approach me with the heart of a child, right? Uh, so I get to watch my children, and as my son, my son, Natanel, loves hugs. He just randomly will run up at any given moment and go, huggy? And then wrap his arms around you for a big bear hug. He just loves hugs, and he loves to be around you. And Eliana is the same way. She just loves to interact and to, uh, to get loved on and hugged and, uh, and to, to get kissed and whatever. She just loves that intimate interaction. And the reality is, is that's what God wants from us, is he wants that intimate interaction. That's what he created us for, was to experience his presence in an intimate way as a child of the God of all creation, as a child of the king of the universe. And when sin entered into the world, when sin entered into our lives on an individual basis, what we actually did was we severed that ability that God created in us to be in his presence in a literal sense. Instead, what the Lord has done since then and until the return of Messiah is that he has placed his presence in the midst of his people, which was the whole discussion of the purpose of the tabernacle, the Mishkan, and the uh, Beit Hamikdash, the temple, was a dwelling place for the presence of the Lord among his people. And as we look at this week's Parsha and next week's Parsha, we actually see the layout as God commanded for the camps of Israel. And if you pay attention to it, it's actually laid out in a way that you have the nation of Israel as a barrier between the presence of God and the nations around us. Why? Because the Lord says his presence cannot dwell among sin. And what he called us out for was to be set apart from the nations. In other words, we have given the Torah so that we could be set apart from sinful ways. And we still failed miserably at that. Uh, but that we could be set apart from the, the sinful ways of the world around us so that the world would see us and want that relationship, that intimate relationship we are supposed to have with the presence of our Father. And so as we look at the diagram of the nation of Israel around the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness, we realize that there was a barrier immediately around the tabernacle of the Leviim, of the Levites, right? Of the, the, the children of Levi. And you've got uh, technically four tribes. It's really, uh, or four families, really three families and a subfamily from the Kohathites, uh, which were the, the, the Kohanim were, the priesthood. Uh, and as we look at this, we realize that on the west side, the south side, and the north side of the tabernacle are the three Levitical families that are not the Kohanim, that are not the Aaronic priesthood. We have these three families around uh, Gershon, Merari, and Koeth that are surrounding the north, south, and west sides of the tabernacle. And then on the east side, which, what's at the east side of the tabernacle? It's the entrance into the outer courts, right? It's the entrance into the tabernacle. The entrance of the outer courts sits on the east side. The entrance of the inner court sits on the east side. The entrance of the Holy of Holies sits on the east side. And so on the east side of the tabernacle is where the priesthood, the Aaronic order camped. And so you have this barrier of the Leviim around the tabernacle protecting the nation of Israel from the presence of God because the presence of God is all-consuming. 
And God wants nothing more than for us to be in his presence. But there's this barrier that protects us because of sin in our lives. And so the actual entrance to the tabernacle is protected by the only ones who could go into the presence of the Lord, the Holy of Holies. And only, they could only do that once a year on uh, Yom Kippur. Now around that, we then have the 12 tribes of Israel uh, outside of the, the Levim, outside of the Levites camp. And on the east side of the, the camp, in the center of the east side of the camp, the east side of the tabernacle was who? Right dead center of the, the tribes. Tribe of Judah, right? Who the king, uh, kingship, rulership, the kingly rulership of Israel would come from. And so sitting right against the Aaronic order was the, the, the tribe of Judah, who was a warrior tribe. They are the, 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 the fighters. They are the, 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 uh, the leaders of the nation of Israel and ultimately the king lineage of Israel, of, of the, the people of Israel would come forth from the tribe of Judah. And it's also interesting, as you look at this, each one had their own flag, their own banner that they sat under, their own colors that they sat under. And did you realize that each of the flags of each of the tribes, uh, each of the tribes have a flag, and their flag, the color of that flag, is representative of the color and matches the color of their tribal stone on the breastplate of the priests, uh, of the, uh, the, the high priest's uh, garments that he would wear in the ministry in the tabernacle. And so we see the way this all maps out. And so that breastplate was a reminder before the presence of the Lord of the tribes of Israel. And those flags are a marker to everybody of whose tribe they are and where they're a part of. But in particular, as we look at the camp set up and the way the Lord has this uh, set up and what he's trying to do, we go to Numbers chapter 1, verse 51. It says, whenever the tabernacle sets out, uh, the Levites are to dismantle it. And whenever the tabernacle is pitched, the Levites are to set it up. But the commoner who comes near to it must be put to death. B'nai Israel will camp, or the children of Israel will encamp, each man with his own camp, each with his own standard, according to their own divisions. The Levites are to camp around the tabernacle, the testimony, so that there will be no wrath unleashed on the community of the B'nai Israel. So the Levites are to maintain care of the tabernacle, the testimony. So B'nai Israel did all that Adonai commanded Moses, so they did. So we see the Lord sets up this barrier, this protective barrier of the, of the Leviim and the Kohanim for the people of Israel and the, the people of Israel as a barrier or a protection from the presence of God for the nations around them. Uh, and then we go forward to Numbers chapter 3 verse 38. Uh, and it speaks of what we just talked about, those camping in front of the tent of meeting on the east toward the sunrise where Moses, Aaron, and his sons, they were to carry out, uh, carry for the sanctuary, uh, care for the sanctuary on behalf of B'nai Israel, but anyone unauthorized who approached had to be executed. Uh, Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. So they, this is going forward, by the way, uh, a few chapters and into a whole other partia, but I want this to be, this is all a contextual passage here, moving through here, and I want you to understand where we're going. So Numbers chapter 10, verse 33. So they advanced from the mountain of Adonai, a trip three days, the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai going ahead of them for those three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of Adonai was over them by day when they uh, advanced from the camp. Whenever the ark would set out, Moses would say, Arise, Adonai, may, uh, may your enemies be scattered. May those who hate you flee from before you. Then whenever it would come, uh, it came to rest, he would say, Return, Adonai, to the myriads of thousands of the thousands of Israel. Sound familiar? We say it each and every week in our Torah service, right? Uh, this is what Moses would proclaim as the presence of God would usher Israel to move out or usher Israel to uh, set up camp and to rest. And what we realize here is that the presence of God in the tabernacle, not only was it 
for us to be able to experience his presence, but it was so that God would lead the nation of Israel on their journeys, right? Israel didn't get to decide where they wanted to go. They didn't, and, and anytime we see that they did, they kind of messed it all up pretty bad, right? Over and over and over again throughout the Tanakh. Anytime we did what we wanted to do, we messed it up pretty bad. But when we look at this, what the Lord wanted to do was his presence would lead the nation of Israel. And that's why the uh, Aron HaKodesh, the Ark of the Covenant, would lead, uh, or the Aron HaBrit, the Ark of the Covenant, would lead Israel in their journey. And if we go back to this week's partial, we realize it talks about how they're to move out. And it says that there would be six camps uh, of the tribes of Israel that would pick up and start to move. And then the priesthood, the Leviim, would pick up the piece of the tabernacle and they would move in the middle of the camp. And then the other uh, six tribes would follow behind as the rear guard. And when we're looking at that in just that beginning of the, the book of Numbers, it's really easy to go, oh, well, the tabernacle is in the middle. So that must mean the presence of God is in the middle. So we've got to go forward in this contextual passage and realize, no, the presence of God was actually out front. The presence of God led Israel, which is why the Aron Habrit, the Ark of the Covenant, was out front leading the nation of Israel and, uh, as they went on their journey. And so the presence would lift up off of the tabernacle, and that was when they knew it was time to pack everything up. And each of the Levitical uh, tribes or families would have their jobs and their marching orders, and they'd go get their stuff done, and they would quickly pack up and move and start to follow God. And we imagine this had to be a quick-fire scenario because when the Lord says, go, we've got to move, right? We've got to get up and go. We have no clue what's coming or what's before us. We know the Lord's trying to do something. And so as we look at this, uh, ultimately as we look through numbers, what we recognize is that the Lord's desire for his people was always that we be so intimate with him that we would be willing to follow his presence, right? That we'd be willing to follow him wherever he takes us. And God's ultimate goal here was to take us from Sinai to the promised land. It was only supposed to take three days. That's what it says here in Numbers 10. It was only supposed to take three days to pick up from Sinai and move to the promised land. However, we really don't do well at doing what God wants us to do. We get to the shores of the Jordan and Moses sends 12 spies over. I think his first mistake was he sent them out in front of the entire nation. So the entire nation were there waiting for him when they came back. And they come back with an evil report and the entire nation is uh, buried down in pain and anguish and sorrow and refuse to go in to take the promises of God that God said was already theirs. And then God says, all right, well, this first generation is going to rot away in the wilderness for the next uh, 40 years or 38 years and change for a total uh, of 40 years. And then your children will get to go in and take the promises of God. And, you know, when we go to Joshua and we see that the, the two spies that Joshua sends in private, in secret, because he learned from Moses, don't do it in front of everybody. Send them in in secret, tell them to come straight back to you and not talk to anyone else. The spies go in in the book of Joshua and they go to, they find Rahab and they talk with Rahab. And what is it Rahab says? Dude, we've been waiting for you for 40 years. We've been scared to death of what the Lord is going to do to us through you because we heard of what he did to Egypt through you. All of a sudden, my mind just blows up as I think the people that God says, you know, the whole reason that they were dispersed from Canaan and the, the land was given to Israel is because the Lord says the Canaanites are too far gone for restoration. And so the people that are too far gone for restoration, the people that the Lord says they could care less about him, had more faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob than the descendancy of, the God, of, the, 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 of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had more faith in the chosen people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know what's interesting is when we look at the world around us, a lot of times non-believers have more faith in what God says he's going to do than we do. They may not know how to word it, and they may not know what their faith is in and what's going on, but they have more faith of what's going on than, than and, and what the Lord has in store than we do. And that's a really sad problem. And we need to get our heads on straight when it comes to that. But the reality is, is there's only one way to be in tune with 
what the Lord wants to do. There's only one way to be in tune with being able to walk a life that lives day in and day out that life of faith like what we're supposed to have to be able to interact with his presence. And the only way to do that is to be led daily, every waking moment by him. Right? Proverbs says that man plans out his, his life, but the Lord uh, uh, sets his foot, his path, sets his path before him, right? That's the whole, whole point is we're supposed to follow him. No matter what we think we want to do or think we should do, we have to seek the face of the Lord. We have to seek his presence in everything and follow his will for our lives. Uh, Danielle and I, you know, it's not to say that we're necessarily good at it because a lot of times we argue with God about it. I just haven't figured out a way to win those arguments. Uh, but Danielle and I are, are pretty proficient at this point in our life of when the Lord says, get up and go, we just do because we've learned the hard way that it's not worth it to try and fight against it. But the Lord called us to New York. We just packed up everything and left. Uh, some of you heard me say this before. We didn't have any money when we moved to New York. We're breaking open rolls of quarters to pay tolls on the, on the, the New Jersey Turnpike, which, by the way, toll operators don't like. You know, when you get to a toll with a huge Penske truck and they say, all right, that's $24 and you're counting out $24 a quarters, you know who likes it less than them is the people waiting for you to count quarters behind you. Um, but, but the Lord said, go, and we just went. We went to New York and the Lord calls us south. And so we pack up and we move back down south and we had nothing then either. But we knew the Lord was leading us when we went and the Lord called us from there over here to start the congregation here. And we had nothing then either. And we packed up and left, and we just did what the Lord said. And over and over and over again, this is exactly what we've tried to do as a community. This is what we try to do. The Lord put it in our hearts to, to talk to the, the church that owned this building before us and ask them about buying it. We had no opportunity, no way, no possibility of doing so. We had no funds for it. There was no way on paper in reality that this could ever work. But the Lord led us to talk to him, and we did. And lo and behold, here we are three and a half years later, and it's ours. And the Lord provided the means every single way. Does that mean it was an easy ride? No, it was a roller coaster. It was more stressful than anything I've ever experienced in my life. The last three weeks leading up to that was more stressful than anything I've ever experienced in my life. And I've got two kids who jump on trampolines and do really goofy stuff like run across the house as fast as they can and dive face first into bookcases. Uh, you know, and, and dealing with this was one of the most stressful things I've ever dealt with. Um, and, and the reality, though, is, is that we just continued in spite of everything. Every time it seemed like a door was closing, we just went, you know, Lord, you said you got this. We're just going to trust you. I don't understand why this is happening. I understand why that's happening. But you said you got this, and we're just going to trust you. You do what you're going to do, and, and we'll follow you. And three and a half years later, here we are, and it's ours. It's the synagogue's property. The synagogue owns it. We don't have to answer to anybody about it. We don't have to deal with anything with it. We just get to do what the Lord put us here. And, and I've learned over the years, and I think one of the, the main key things to, to take from numbers as a whole uh, is that it is vitally important that we follow the lead of the Lord in everything that we submit to his presence leading our footsteps. You know, the Brechadashah, the New Covenant, the New Testament writing says that we are now the temple of the Lord, and I actually believe it's, it should be more accurately interpreted that we are the tabernacle because the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place for the presence of the Lord, whereas the, the temple was designed to be a permanent, uh, uh, a permanent um, house for the presence of the Lord, and we're temporal right? And his presence resides in our, uh, in our hearts as much as it did on the, the Aron Habrit, the Ark of the Covenant, and the Holy of Holies. And as such, everything that we do should be at the behest of the leading of God, no matter what. And you know, what's really interesting as we look through the gospel narrative over and over and over again, there's one key phrase that we see from Yeshua's words continually through the gospels. And it doesn't matter which one you're talking about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they're all, we see the same thing over and over again. And it's the Lord saying, Yeshua saying two words, follow me. Follow me, 
follow me. In uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, now as Yeshua was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. It's kind of redundant to have to explain that, but nonetheless, they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And here's the key, verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately they left their nets and this dude's walking around. Who knows who this guy is, right? Who knows who this guy is? Walks up, says, follow me. Most of us would be like, I need resumes. I need background checks. I need, uh, you know, I, I need references from your last three employers and your last six uh, landlords. And I need your nearest relative not living with you so I can make sure that you're verifiable and legit. And here is, is Peter and Andrew. And uh, Yeshua says, hey, let's go. And they went, all right, cool. Dropped everything and followed them. Oddly enough, what's interesting, and I think it's uh, a sign of the human condition and how we live as well, is that after Yeshua uh, uh, is dead and buried and when he was resurrected, but not all were really aware of what was happening yet, what was it that Peter ended up doing? Went back to fishing. Right? He was quick and happy to get up and go when the Lord said go, but when it looked like everything he thought was going to happen came to an end, all he knew was to revert back to what he used to be. And a lot of times as believers, when it looks like we run into a brick wall, rather than going, okay, maybe the Lord has a detour here for me. May the Lord has something else for me. May the Lord is trying to teach me something. Here we go. I guess the Lord's done with me. And we just turn around and go back to where we walked away from. Whatever it was and whoever we were before, we just go back there because we knew that. It was comfortable there. It was convenient there. And the Lord's still saying, nah, get up and follow me. Just come on, follow me. Over and over again, we read this message in the Brich HaDashah, and particularly in the Gospels. We go to Matthew 9, verse 9. As Yeshua was passing by from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, he's a tax collector. Most of the people of Israel just keep walking by. Why are we going to bother with you? you know, you're one of the most despicable people in the human, uh, of the human race because you're taking our money. Uh, but he says uh, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. He said to him, follow me. And here's the catch. And he got up and followed him. How many of us are that quick to respond when the Lord says, follow me? When the Lord says, I have something new for you. I have something new in store for you. Just follow me. How many of us are that quick to respond? But what the Lord says over and over again is follow me. Verse 37 of Matthew chapter 10. He who loves uh, father or mother uh, more than me isn't worthy of me. And he who loves son and do or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me isn't worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In Luke, the same passage is worded slightly different. In Luke, it says, uh, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your sister, or your brother, pick up your cross and follow me. Right? That's what he says. Is hate your father, mother, sister, and brother. Pick up your cross and follow me. Now we recognize in the two conjunct, uh, conjoined together that well, the, Lord's not, the Lord's not calling us to hate anybody. He's calling us to not place anybody else before him, no matter who it is. He is our top priority, but he says, pick up your cross and follow me. And then he says here in Matthew uh, chapter, six, chapter 10, he says, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Yeshua tells us later on, you know, the world's going to hate you, but they're not going to hate you because of who you are. They're going to hate you because of who it is that's in you. And by the way, as believers and as the body of Messiah, if the world doesn't hate who is in us, then we're not in Messiah. I hate to break it to you. There's no such thing as placating the world around us. 
There's no such thing as molding and manipulating the gospel narrative to make it more acceptable to the world around us, to make us more likable, to make us more uh, palatable to the world around. It doesn't work that way. The whole purpose to the gospel is to offend sin in our life, and it doesn't offend sin in our life. It's not the gospel. And if the world around us doesn't hate us because of who is in us, then he's not really in us in the way we think he is, or at least in the way he wants to be. So we have to live our lives literally forsaking all and following him no matter what. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time on, Yeshua began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the ruling Kohanim and Torah scholars and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Never, Master, this must never happen to you. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of men. And then he goes on in verse 24, then Yeshua said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Listen, a day is coming, and if you don't believe me, look at Syria and Iraq over the last several years. A day is coming where if you are bought by the blood of the Lamb and you proudly bear the name of Messiah in your life, the world will want to kill you. And if you try to save your life by placating the world, might as well give it up. Might as well give it up. So the Lord says we must be willing to lay our life down for him. How many are truly willing to lay their life down for him? Look, we look at the body of Messiah today and we see all the different things going on. A lot of congregations worship is more about the show than actually an intimate relationship with the Lord. And the reality is, is that the Lord wants that intimate relationship with us so that we know what it is we're willing to lay our life down for. If we don't have that intimate relationship with him, then we're never going to be willing to lay our life down. We're never going to be willing to pick up our cross and follow him. And that is a literal statement because he carried his stake on his back. And he's calling us to be willing to carry our own execution on our back. He's calling us to be willing to give up everything and follow him no matter what. No matter what. See, the whole purpose of the tabernacle in the midst of the nation of Israel was that the presence of God would be among us in spite of the fact that we chose not to be in the presence of God, literally. And the presence of God was there to lead us on the journey into the promises of God. And when we don't follow literally stopping everything, picking up everything that we have and follow him when he calls us, we're never going to experience the promises of God and we're going to die in the wilderness. Chosen, but never actually fu fulfilling the reality of experience as promises. See, that first generation in the wilderness that died in the wilderness, they were as much part of the chosen people of God as the generation that went in. They were as much a part of the chosen people as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers that went before them. But they never experienced the promise of God, the fulfillment of the promise of God, not because God's promise wasn't waiting for them, not because God didn't call them to walk in it, but because they refused to follow it. They refused to lay all down and follow him. They refused to be willing to be hated by the world and trust in him. And the Lord is calling us today as much as he ever has in the history of his word to return back to a faithfulness and following him no matter what. 
and walking faithfully in his ways and trusting him in spite of what the world around us says. Look at the news. Look at what's happening around us. If you don't see Matthew 24 and Luke 21 being fulfilled before us, if you don't see Daniel happening right before us, revelation becoming reality, if you don't see these prophecies becoming fulfilled before our very eyes, you need to go back to the book again. Because it's happening. And yes, I will concede the fact that every generation since John wrote Revelation has said this is our day. But no generation has been more accurate than we are. And that's not to be prideful, but we see the total package of everything that's happening, including the restoration of the nation of Israel, which was an end-time prophecy, the reunification of the city of Jerusalem, which was a prophecy that Yeshua said would happen before the end of the time the Gentiles came. And as we look at all these things happening, time is beginning to speed up and prophecy is running faster than time itself and Messiah is coming back soon. And the words that he has to say to you and I and all of those that are, are his is the same as it was when he talked to Matthew and when he talked to Peter and when he talked to Andrew was get up and follow me and what he wants from us is for, to do, for us to do exactly what they did which is just to get up and follow him no talking back no running our mouth no saying hang on let me go bury the dead let me go do this let me go do that but follow him when the Lord says open up your mouth and speak into somebody's life open up your mouth and speak because it's not your words and it's not you speaking it is him speaking through you and for his purposes and for the good of his kingdom in their life when the Lord tells you to, to go and to give somebody money to help them out, do it because it's not your money anyways. When the Lord tells you to fall on your face and worship before him, do it. When the Lord says put your hands on somebody and pray for them, first ask for permission so you don't get decked. But when he says put your hands on somebody and pray for them, do it because you don't know what he's trying to do in their life and what he wants to use you for. Don't question it. Don't argue it. Follow. That's the overarching narrative of the gospel is to follow him no matter what. And it's necessary that we do so today more than ever because we don't live in a world that allots us the time to be constantly playing around anymore. Or as Danielle likes to say, to dilly-dally. We don't have time to dilly-dally anymore. I still don't know what it means, but she likes to say it, so I'll give her a nod. Uh, the, we don't have time to do any of that anymore. We have to follow what the Lord is calling us to do. We have this huge Shavuot service tomorrow, not because it's something we want to do, although I do want to do it. I think it's going to be ridiculously awesome. But it's not because we wanted to do it. It's because the Lord told us to do it. You think I wanted to take months out of my time to go around to talk to all these different people and to, to try and, and market and do all these things and, and get things. You think, I, I, look, I got enough on my plate as it is. I went to Africa three weeks ago. I had a lot going on as it was. We just closed on the building. We had all kinds of stuff happening. I got a family. Uh, I've got you guys. I've got a lot already. And the Lord called us to do this anyways. And so we just said, all right, let's do it. Let's see what happens. I have no clue what he's got in store, but it doesn't matter what I think he's got in store. He's got a plan and a purpose. And we've got to follow him. And now is the time. Now is the time more than ever. And part of following him is following him united as one. See, the nation of Israel didn't pick up and follow the presence of the Lord when his presence lifted off the ark if it wasn't the entire nation following. You didn't see half the tribes follow after and the other half say, we'll catch up with you. You didn't see the ark uh, meander off and the Levites go, eh, we'll get up there eventually, it's all right. It says, as soon as the presence lifted, Israel broke down their camp, packed up everything, and started to walk. As soon as the Lord said, let's go, they went. We don't leave stragglers behind. Part of discipleship is discipling people so the stragglers don't get left behind. But it's necessary that we be willing to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, 
so that we can follow him. And we've got to set aside our own pride because we may really like our job. We may really like our neighborhood. We may really like the friends and the family that we have in the area. We may really like the comfort of these nice chairs that we have here, but you know what? The Lord's called us to do something else tomorrow. So we're not, not going to be in these nice, comfortable chairs here. I hope they're comfortable over there too. I don't know. I don't usually get to sit in them anyways. Uh, but the reality is, is it doesn't matter what we're comfortable with. Peter and Andrew were comfortable fishing. That's what they knew. That's why they went back to it when Yeshua uh, was put in the ground. That's what they went back to because they were comfortable with it. They knew it. He doesn't call us to be comfortable. He calls us to be out of our comfort zone because it's when we're outside of our comfort zone that we're outside of our pride and we're humble enough and raw enough that the Lord can use us in the way he wants to use us without us having to be forced into something. But we willingly trust in him when we're caught in that comfort zone in our own pride, we're not trusting in him, we're trusting in ourselves, which is why we tend to fail in those situations. But when we walk faithfully in the Lord's promises and his calling, you don't fail. It just doesn't happen. And if it does, you need to reevaluate whether you did what you thought you did. The Lord wants us to simply do what we see the example set before us in Scripture of Abraham, of David, of Moses. Moses argued a little bit, but he eventually did it. Of the disciples, of Paul, when he says, get up and follow me, follow. Don't ask why, don't ask where we're going, you'll find out eventually. When he called Abraham, he said, get up and go to a country you've never known. You don't even know where you're going, just start walking and I'll tell you when you're there. It's a lot of faith in the GPS. Y'all know where you're going, just I'll tell you when you're there. It's walking into a surprise party none of us want to, be, to experience. But the reality is, is Abraham was happy to pack up and leave and follow a God that his family never knew into a place that he's never experienced. Trusting, and notice, trusting not just in the promises of God, but in what God had in store. Because the promises were part of it. But the Lord's provision, the Lord's protection, the Lord's love, the Lord's shalom, shalom, his perfect peace was also a part of it. Sure, he got really wealthy along the way. And sure, he messed a lot of things up along the way. But the Lord's will and purpose was done because he followed. And even when he stepped outside of the will of God, he quickly realigned himself again and repented. Let us learn our lesson from those that went before us to follow when the Lord says, follow me. To humbly take his direction as we follow his lead. And when we do, and we will, step outside the will of God, let us return humbly and repentance back in alignment with his will. But most importantly, let us recognize that the Lord wants nothing more than to have an intimate relationship with us. And it's through that intimate relationship that we will hear his voice, that we will know his will for our life, that we will be able to follow him because we're walking closely with him. You know, we've been in the store before, and I'll say this in closing, we've been in the store before with our kids, and Natanel is, has got way too much of me and me in him that kid's like in a world of his own all over the place. And, you know, we're walking down the aisles in Target and walking, uh, he was, I don't know, maybe 
three, four years old, something like that. And we're walking through Target, and uh, we realize he's not walking with us. He's still back looking at something, like eight aisles back in this massive, you know, middle aisle. He's still way back there, and we're like, all right. Danny turned down this aisle. So we turned down the aisle right there beside us, and then I stood at the end where he couldn't see me, but I could see everything he was doing. And all of a sudden, the light clicked. Oh, wait, where are my parents? And he turned around, and we weren't there, and we were nowhere to be seen. And he's frantically running up and down this aisle trying to find us and screaming his head off and tears pouring out of his eyes. And eventually I stepped out and I went not to know. He turned around and bolted as quick as he could from my arms and wrapped himself around me as tight as he could. And I said, see, buddy, that's why you've got to follow us. That's why you've got to stay with us. Because that feeling you had of abandonment, the feeling you had of, of not knowing where anybody was that you knew, that's because you stepped out of line of what you're supposed to do. And we feel that feeling in our lives sometimes, right? When we step outside of the will of God, but he's still standing there. And what's even worse is we're so stupid sometimes. He's not hiding behind an aisle. He's out in the middle of the open waiting for us the entire time. And we're too stupid to turn around and see him. Maybe it's just me. But he's standing there the whole time just waiting for us to come back so that we can follow him again. May we learn our lesson this time around. The days are few. The work is great and the harvest is waiting. We don't have time to waste anymore. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I thank you that your word rings true forever, year after year, no matter what, that your word is a living word and that you continually speak to us through it. Father, I thank you that you have called us to be followers of Messiah. You've called us to emulate Messiah in the world around us. You've called us to be hated by the world, not because of who we are, but because of you in our lives. Father, may we come to know the truth of that reality in such a mighty and powerful way, not so that we feel persecution, but Lord, so that the world around us will see your presence, will know that you are in their midst, and will come to know your saving grace because of the work you have done in our lives. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen.